Welcome to The Big Interview with Dan Rather, the podcast that delves deep into the heart of music through the words of the artists themselves. This is your backstage pass to intimate conversations with legends and icons from across the music world, as guided by none other than the legendary Dan Rather. Each episode will bring you exclusive in-depth interviews from rock and roll to country, from pop to alternative. We cover it all right here on The Big Interview with Dan Rather. So sit back, relax, and prepare to immerse yourself in the stories, the struggles, the triumphs, and the tunes that have shaped our musical landscape. Here's your host, Dan Rather. On this edition of The Big Interview, country and bluegrass icon, Ricky Skye. Hey, Ricky. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing great. See, you brought your weapon along with you. I did. Got to have the weapon. Yes. <laughs> well, come on in and have a seat. Uh-oh. Let's talk. All right. All the people that come from far away, they dance all night for the break of day. When Ricky Skaggs performs, you hear all of Appalachia echoing out of him. He and his band, Kentucky Thunder, brought bluegrass to Brooklyn, New York earlier this summer when they played Prospect Park as part of the Celebrate Brooklyn Festival. It's not the typical venue for this type of music, but whenever Skagg steps on stage, Howdy! it's a crash course in Americana. Ever since his father handed him a mandolin at the age of five, Ricky Skaggs has been making a case for himself as one of the greats of country music. He was a natural if there ever was one. It didn't take long for his parents to realize that their son was a prodigy, so the Skaggs left the hollows of Kentucky for the suburbs of Nashville. Though he was too young to play at the Grand Ole Opry, seven-year-old Ricky Skaggs soon found himself picking alongside country icons Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs on their television show. It was his first paid gig, and people have been talking about Ricky Skaggs ever since. In the 1970s, Ricky Skaggs played with a number of talented musicians and influential bands, such as J.D. Crowe and the New South, and Emmylou Harris's Hot Band. It was apparent to everyone, however, that Skaggs wasn't meant to just linger in the background. So, in the early 1980s, he broke away on his own and shifted his focus to country music. He first hit number one in 1982 with his cover of the Flat and Shrugged song, Crying My Heart Out Over You. Now I'm crying my heart out over you. And he hardly relinquished the top spot for the rest of the decade. Under the tutelage of the legendary Bill Monroe, Skaggs veered away from the soft country sound made popular by other artists of that era. Instead, Skaggs threw in more fiddles, 
amped up the banjo and proudly sang with a twang in his voice, pioneering country's celebrated neo-traditional movement. I may look like a bank teller pushing banks in a file, but I'd rather be a hog coward chewing cud on the sky. And in his wake came the next group of country superstars, like Reba McIntyre and Vince Gill, who carried on that classic country sound. Country boy at in 2018, the Country Music Hall of Fame chose Ricky Skaggs as one of its newest inductees. Oh, wow. My God, this is, this is really, this is really big. This is really something. Nobody gets into the Country Music Hall of Fame overnight, and Skaggs has certainly been working his entire life to earn a spot in that hallowed rotunda. I caught up with Ricky Skaggs at the Grand Ole Opry's second home in the middle of Times Square, New York. Well, how are you doing, Ricky? I'm doing really good. I'm really doing good, and I appreciate getting to do this interview with you. You're, you're a legend. Well, in order to that, you are the legend, my yeah. friend. No, you... But you know, we're here at the Opera City stage, which is the new Grand yeah. Ole Opry Associated Place in New York City. Right. But let's talk about the Grand yeah. Ole Opry. What are your first memories of the Opry? Listening to WSM uh, on the radio at home. In Nashville. It's my f yeah. I was living in, uh, in Kentucky, in the hills up there. I tell people that we live so far back in the woods that we didn't get the Grand Ole Opry till Tuesday night. <laughs> but uh, now it's not funny because they do Opry's on Tuesday. They ruin my joke. But, uh, but uh, I, I remember listening. Uh, my mom and dad, you know, they loved the Opry. And, you know, even when they first got married, the, the only thing they had to their name when they got married was a radio, an old battery radio, and my dad's little Martin guitar. They didn't have a car, they didn't have a house, they didn't have nothing. And uh, they had love, though. That was the main thing. And, uh, but they, they, they made it uh, 58, 59 years you know, in marriage. It, uh, my dad passed away in 96, my mom passed away in 2000. But I well, loved hearing the Opry, just well, so in, excited. In 1982, that you were inducted, uh, you were asked to join the Grand Ole Opry. Yeah. At that time, you were the youngest person to go in. Do you remember that moment? I remember that moment very well. Um, it was uh, it was just surreal, you know. I was like, uh, I can't believe that this is actually happening, you know. And um, I'd heard the Opry all my life. As a matter of fact, we we got to. My dad took us to Nashville one time to see the Opry. He was so crazy about it, you know. And I remember as a kid sitting in the audience at the old Ryman where it was at that time, you right. know. And <clears throat> when I saw those people come out on the stage, they had those colorful nudie suits, you know. Uh, <laughs> uh, and they were all you know, purples and, and, and reds and greens. And the, the ladies had all these beautiful dresses on. So I remember the sights. I remember the smells because those old church seats in the rum and that used to be a church. I could smell juicy fruit chewing gum all over that place. It smelled like church. And, but the sounds, I loved hearing the sounds. The steel guitar would play or, or, or whatever was taking a solo and it would go up that old that uh, wooden ceiling that they had up there and it would bounce down and I could hear it so well in my little 
seven-year-old ears, you know, and um, it was something to behold. It really was. And then knowing that in, you know, that all of that history that was there, I was getting to walk into that at, uh, in 1982 uh, as the as a newest member of the Grand Ole Opry. Ernest Tubb actually inducted me that night, and uh, boy, what a what a thrill that was. But let's back off for a moment and talk about the Opry just a second yeah. more. It's an important piece of Americana. Absolutely. And a lot of people don't recognize that, particularly since we've become a more urban mm -hmm. society. Yeah. But you, you, you lived the Grand Ole Opry. Where does it fit in Americana? What's, what's its importance to our culture? It's a hope. Mm -hmm. It's a standard. You know, in the flood of new music, in a flood of controversy, in a flood of so much that's going on in our, in our nation today, the Grand Ole Opry is a beacon of, of hope. With, with the great music that comes out there, it's still, it's still on WSM 650, 50,000-watt 50, station. Of course, they broadcast it now, rebroadcast it on, uh, on XM, uh, Willie's Roadhouse. Um, but online, it goes all over the world. It's amazing. It's, uh, people hear it in North Carolina and Peking, China. I mean, I, you know, they, they hear it everywhere. And, but it's, it's this standard of slow down you know listen to the music let the music speak let you know let's have fun for a while and and i love that they still do commercials you know they <laughs> throw it to the to the mc and he reads these commercials you know and, and i mean it it birthed a prairie home companion you know it, it did it, it birthed a garrison keeler show you know he came and watched it one time and said my god i want to do that you know and uh, so it's it's still the longest running radio show in America, and um, I just think the Grand Ole Opry uh, still has this call that it was birthed to reach the nations, to touch people. Stay with us as Dan explores the earliest memories and songs that influenced Ricky Skaggs when the big interview continues. Let's get back to Dan Rather's big interview as he explores early memories, first songs, and the events that influenced Ricky Skaggs. As I went down in the valley to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the robing crown, good Lord, show me the way. Oh, mother, let's go down, let's go down, won't you come on down? Oh, mother, let's go down, down in the valley to pray. Well, I want to take you back to the first even tinges of memory do you remember the first song that you recall that your mother sang? She used to sing a song called "Jesus Spoke to Me." Mm -hmm. It's an old, an old spiritual. Jesus spoke to me one day, praise His holy name. Said He died my debt to pay, bore my sin and shame through His service here below. Though He spoke to me, I believe and now I know that I've been set free. And so I would sing on the course, you know, because I heard her sing it with Dad. Oh, yes, Christ Jesus spoke to me. Jesus spoke to me. I knew it and I was lost. And I was singing when I was three before I got the mandolin. And so Mom and Dad, when we'd go to church, you know, they uh, they set me on the, the 
pulpit, you know, mm -hmm. and those pulpits wasn't always flat, you know, they, yeah. they were kind of, you know, lean back like that sometimes. And so my little little feet would dangle down and, and uh, but I'd sit there and sing with mom and dad in church before I, you know, got to. You went church. on from your youth to extraordinary success and success early, yeah. mentioning you were the youngest member at the time to be inducted into the Grand mm -hmm. Ole Opry. Yeah. Did you find yourself straying from those religious roots through 16, 20, 25, through that period? Yeah, I did. I, uh, you know, I found, uh, I found myself uh, wanting to drink a little bit, you know. And uh, I remember, I remember my mom with that prophetic bony <laughs> finger of hers. When I went out with Ralph Stanley the first time, she said, all right, I'm letting you go. But if you take a drink of whiskey, I pray to God it makes you sick and you'll just throw your guts up. But you did drink whiskey. I did once or twice, and every time I did, I got so sick I couldn't, I couldn't handle it. So I said, okay, Mom, all right, thank you for the prayers. But, uh, but you know, I just wasn't really, really taking a lot to, 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 to alcohol. Uh, I, I know why she did it, and I know... Um, She'd seen so many of her family members and, and, uh, and my dad's side of the family too, the Skagg side of the family. Uh, some of them was rough as cobs, boy, they, they, just, they just drank and, you know, and, uh, but, uh, and my great grandfather, Thompson, uh, made, made moonshine, he made whiskey. And uh, so my mom had seen it and she didn't want that for her kids. She didn't want it and she wouldn't let people drink in the house. And we'd have music up at the house, you know, on Friday and Saturday nights. Uh, I mean, that was, that was the law, you know, you wasn't bringing no, no, nothing in the house, you know. You started so young. Do you have any idea what you might have become, what would have been your life's work if it hadn't been for music? I'm reminded your father was a welder. Mm -hmm. I was once a welder's helper, which is one reason this, I may be asking yeah. this question. Do you think you might have wound, wound, wound up being a, a welder or a preacher or what do you think? Uh, when I was born, the, uh, the doctor smacked my butt, you know, and I squalled out, you know, and and said, well, and he said, Miss Skaggs, you got a you got a boy, and said he's got a healthy set of lungs, said he's either going to be a singer or a preacher, <laughs> and she said, well, I want both. <laughs> but I, I've, I've thought about that same question, Dan. It's funny. I know one thing. I believe in my heart that. God has a plan and a purpose and a dream and a vision for every creation, every person. I think God has designed us with a purpose. I believe that. I believe you were called to be a reporter. I believe that with all my heart. You do it so well. You, you excel at it. And there's joy in your heart about it. You love doing this. That's you true. Do. I do love and you've doing always it. loved it, you know. So but God loved it first. He loved it before he gave it to you. So he knows what he wants us to be doing. So you a lot think it was people, your destiny? It was my destiny, no doubt about it. The way I was able to excel as a musician, as a singer, and all of that stuff, and the doors that started opening for me when I was six years old, I got up on stage with Bill Monroe when I was seven years old. I got on, uh, you can see it on YouTube with Flat and Scrubs. There I am, <laughs> a little seven-year-old towhead, you know, singing. And... Uh, 
so all these all these doors have just opened you know for me and and i I know that that's what I've done. Had I not followed that, I would have been a very sad, sad person. I would not have been happy. I live a simple life. A good coat when the cold winds bite. Leather boots for my bare feet. And now and then a steak to eat. You have a successful bluegrass career. But then in the 1980s, you lead and created in no small way the neo-traditional country music come back in the 1980s. Yeah. I can remember this period well. We went, we'd gone through, uh, heaven help us, the disco stage, and the, the fad and the style of the urban cowboy was mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. And country music was, was at risk of almost disappearing. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say single-handedly because of the others, but you yeah. were a leader in bringing it back. How did you come to that decision? You're, you're a big bluegrass star, that, that's your brand. Mm -hmm. That's your identity, but yeah. you decide I'm going to try to do old-time traditional country music in a new way, and you succeeded. Yeah. Well, Amy Lou Harris was a big part of that. Uh, I knew her in uh, Washington, D.C. when I was living up there, working with a country gentleman in the Seldom Sea, some of those guys. And I met Amy, and uh, uh, she loved the fact that I knew all these songs, these Stanley Brothers songs, and New Harmony and everything like that. So she tried to get me to come in her band when she first went to California. And at the time, I just wasn't ready to leave bluegrass. But when I, when I did decide to go with Amy Lou, it was, it was in 1978 and 79 up until August of 1980. Um, and during that time, she was very gracious to let me sing on her records and uh, let me even do step out parts, sing a whole verse of a song like, uh, you know, the, the, the Darkest Hour is just before dawn. I mean, when we did the bluegrass record, uh, uh, with her, uh, it was, uh, you know, um, Roses in the Snow was the name of that bluegrass record. And uh, when I did that, so many people heard my voice for the very first time and looked on the album credits and there's R Ricky Skaggs, like, who is that, you know? Um, when she had a baby, had uh, Megan, uh, her youngest, she took a year off and, you know, no money, no, you know, no, no, no salary and all that, you know, so, so it was time. But it was time for me to, to get out of the nest and, and do, do something that was in my heart. You know, I always felt like if, you know, if bluegrass music is not popular, why is there a banjo or a fiddle or a mandolin in all these commercials like Toyota and American Express and all these things? If, if, if they're, why don't you use something else if you don't think those instruments are popular? And uh, so I just, uh, I don't know, I just... I said, I really think that if, if I could do bluegrass in a way that I could bring country music, traditional country music sound to it, and then use those mandolin, fiddle, banjo as little elements, you know, uh, I think it could be successful and do the harmonies and all that, you know. Well, it worked. I came to Nashville and, and, uh, Got a record deal with with CBS and uh, Rick Blackburn at, at CBS. And uh, first thing he when he heard the music, he said, "Who produced that?" And I said, "I did." And uh, he said, uh, "Well, um, before he got it out of his mouth, I knew what he was thinking." I said, "And that's kind of a bargaining chip because I don't really 
I have nothing to bargain with. I'm, I'm a, you know, no, you don't know me. You don't, you know, you're listening to this music, so I don't yeah. really have a whole lot of strength here to bargain with. But if you like what you heard, please give me a chance. Let me record what's in my heart, what's in my mind, what I think I can do. You had such an incredible run, one hit after another. Did you get big-headed? Did you get conceited? I know I'm not the person now that I was back then. Um, people may have thought that I was big-headed and conceited, but I think my zeal to have my music and, and somewhat control it, as you could probably see when, when I was talking <laughs> to Blackburn about it, you know, I just wanted my music to be presented in the right way. And so whatever it took, I mean, I was using my band, my road band mm -hmm. on my records. And that was kind of like not heard of. Why aren't you using us, you know, us, uh, Nashville guys here? Yeah. You know, well, because you're playing on 90% of all the music in Nashville, I'll be the 10% that, uh, you know, that's using my band. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of here again, a, a non-heard of thing. But I knew if I had the same guys on the road that was that knew my stuff, because we'd take it out there and test drive it and see yeah. if it was working with the audience, you know, that uh, if we got in the studio, we'd you know we'd we'd get a good take on it, you know. And uh, so if I was conceited, that's I think that's what it was. Now, as far as my fans go, you know, I got so popular so quick, it was a little overwhelming, and it was a little a little kind of a little scary in a lot of ways, you know. Um, here I was singing harmony with Amy Lou one year, and the next year I'm out, you know, fronting a band, right. paying for everything, you know, mm -hmm. or getting, or, or letting CBS be the bank that I, that I, <laughs> that I got money <laughs> loaned from. Um, and, uh, but I was, I didn't, I didn't really know how to, how to, to handle the audience so much maybe and uh, they would want me they'd want some time with me and that kind of stuff and I just I, I kind of wanted to just go off with the band and, and be by myself you yeah. know and um, but I'll tell you I think it took coming out of country going back to bluegrass uh, that God really broke my heart you know I, I felt like I went through a heart change in, in 2015 and that's that's a lot that's a lot later now that we're talking about <laughs> But, but I feel like that I went through a, a real heart change. Um, I lost about, you know, I went on a diet too and, and I, I lost about 60 pounds. And, and, uh, but I feel like during that whole time, I lost a lot of dead weight yeah. that, was, that was bothering me about, about people. And I started seeing people as just beautiful, roses and just lovely you know just seeing people I really wanted to see people the way that the Lord saw people you know have we trials and temptation is there trouble anywhere love loss and fame take their toll on Ricky Skaggs as Dan Rather's big interview continues in a moment stay with us Welcome back to Dan Rather's Big Interview with Ricky Skaggs. Let's listen in on how Ricky's trials and tribulations led to fame. Ricky Skaggs met many people on his way to the top, but two men in particular have left a lasting impression on him. 
the influence that the father of bluegrass, Bill Monroe, had on Skaggs can't be overstated. Skaggs idolized Monroe from a young age, and later on down the line, Monroe became a mentor and close friend to Skaggs. But before all the fame and success, Skaggs formed his first significant musical partnership with Keith Whitley. The two met when they were just teenagers, and together they joined bluegrass legend Ralph Stanley's Clinch Mountain Boys. Later, each went on to enjoy successful solo careers. But their fates diverged. Even as he racked up number one hits, Whitley faced a fierce battle with alcoholism. I'm no stranger to the rain. In 1989, he passed away from alcohol poisoning at the age of just 33. As you begin to make your way up the career ladder, you came in with Keith Whitley. Tell me about that time and how that affected you. Well, me and Keith met when we were about 15. I was playing a little place with my dad and Keith was playing with his brothers, or his brother, and um, we just made friends that night. You know, we, we were the same age, we had so much in common. And uh, so we started, you know, we started playing some with Ralph Stanley. We, we met Ralph, and I'm trying to be quick because I don't know, we got, a, we got a lot to go through, but, but we happened to meet Ralph uh, at a place uh, that he was gonna be playing. His bus broke down, couldn't get there, and this beer joint owner come up <laughs> out of nowhere and said, can you guys get up and sing a little bit while Ralph gets here? And we, yeah. So, you know, we, we got up and sang and played and the only songs we knew was Stanley Brothers songs. So Ralph comes in and, and we're singing his songs. It was pretty humiliating. But anyway, that night was one of those defining moments, you know, in, in my life because Ralph hired us to go on the road, you know, with him through the summer. And But I, I noticed that Keith, you know, liked, he liked to drink, you know. And uh, our, uh, our relationship, I mean, it didn't drive it away or anything like that. I mean, when I, um, when I left Ralph, uh, when I, was, I think I was early 17, you know, just, just had turned 17, uh, I, just, I just got off the road for a little while, you know, and got a job, got married. And, uh, and Keith stayed with Ralph for a while, and then he left and went up to Washington, D.C., and got with some boys up there that played, you know, played music, and they were just in and out of the bars all the time. And and uh, anyway, um, he uh, when he came back to Nashville, I was already there and, and had my record deal and everything like that. And, and of course, we stayed in touch with each other because we loved each other like brothers. I mean, I loved him. And uh, last time I saw him, uh, he was he was married to Lori Morgan. And uh, last time I saw him, uh, Sharon was just about to deliver. Uh, Luke, my son, my youngest son, and uh, Keith died uh, way, way, way too young. He had a lot of trouble, you know, with alcohol, and I know RCA, uh, Joe Galante at RCA loved him and tried and tried and tried to help him, you know, uh, sent him to Betty Ford and a lot of different places, Cumberland Heights there in Nashville, and uh, he just, I don't know. By the way, it occurs to me that you have been a professional musician for over 50 years. Dang. Exclamation point. You had this great run of neo-traditional country music in the yeah. 1980s. Yeah. 
If there came 1996, the year that Bill Monroe, whom you, I think, fair to say, yeah. almost worshipped, yeah. uh, and your father died in the same year, yeah. and there was a, a no, yet another turn in your career. What happened in 1996 that changed you? Well, I uh, started my record label. On your own? Yeah. And Before that was this, a, you're on other people's record yeah, label. Yeah. I moved out of Music Row, moved up to Hendersonville, where we live in Nashville, and uh, got a studio. I bought the Oak Ridge Boys building that they had there that they'd been in for a long time. They'd outgrown that. And uh, I was ready to get in there and, and uh, you know, move some things around and, you know, and make it my own, you know. And so uh, we started Skaggs Family Records and started, you know, got a distributor and started, you know, making my own records when I, when I wanted to and making the kind of music that I wanted to and was able really to, to do it full time as, as, you know, coming back to bluegrass. I think uh, when Mr. Monroe, it was a few months before he passed away, I went to see him. And he, uh, he, he acted really anxious, you know, about, he didn't know how, how his music was going to survive without him. And uh, so I really did. I, I made a conscious decision that, um, you know, we played a few more country shows because we had contracts. And my booking agent just, I just said, hey, see if we can go in as a bluegrass band. Cause Really, even even when he was in the hospital and you know he'd had a stroke, we would go out and we'd play some country for maybe 30 minutes, the hits and all that, and then the band that I had, they could all play bluegrass. So we'd just gather around and start playing some bluegrass, and the crowd loved it because it was something totally different than what they thought they were going to get. And uh, so I was telling, I'd go home, go back and go see him in the hospital. I'd say, we played some bluegrass this week, and I said they loved it. He's he's like, yeah, that's great, you know. So. I knew that it would uh, it, it would be a, a different thing for me, but I also knew that there was purpose behind it. There was a reason to do it. There was a reason to keep this music alive. It was worthy, and that I was at an age and a credibility in my name that I could I could open doors that it hadn't got to go into before, you know. And uh, so that's the that was the main reason that I came back to the music. Let's talk about bluegrass. What is bluegrass music? What separates it from other forms of music? Bluegrass, um, I'd say, is the is the some some would say is the redheaded stepchild to country music. You know, it's the one that doesn't get much attention. You know, but I beg to differ. I think uh, you know, bluegrass music is more the acoustic part of of country music like we were playing on our back porch before we were able to plug into a guitar amp of some sort, you know. And uh, Bill Monroe uh, was the father of bluegrass music. He was the, he was the one that, uh, that I think that, that God just kind of gave the ears to hear, you know, a, a sound. I know he came to, to, to the opera in 1939. He'd been playing with his brother, Charlie Monroe. They, were, they had a very successful brothers duet uh, when they, moved to Charlotte, North Carolina and had, you know, was on a radio show over there and they made all kinds of records and old 78s, you know, and, uh, but Bill wanted something of his own. He really wanted a sound. He, he knew that, he knew that Roy Acuff had a sound at the Grand Ole Opry. He knew that Ernest Tubb had his own sound and Pee Wee King and guys like that. Um, 
So he wanted he wanted a sound that was when when they heard him on the Opry or they heard him on the radio, they would know that it's him. You know that uniqueness. You know, I think my introduction to the Opry, my grandmother Paige lived way out in the country in Bloomington, Texas. Mm -hmm. She never saw the Opry on television, but she heard it on radio. And my recollection is went from Jimmy Rogers, the singing mm -hmm. brakeman, right, uh, then to Roy Acuff. Mm -hmm then to Ernest Tubb and Bill Monroe. Is that pretty much the flow of history through Absolutely. it? Absolutely. It really, really is. That's a very good flow, I think. And of course, the Carter family would have to come in there somewhere. Exactly. Uh, and that was really about Jimmy Rogers' time. You know, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, they came down, uh, some people from New York came to, uh, uh, came to east, you know, a western part of Virginia around Bristol. And they recorded Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family singing together, you know, mm -hmm. those, those early, Jewel, crown jewels, you know, that they, they recorded uh, those people. And, and that was really the first kind of re country music records that really got out there, you know. All right, well, you know, obviously you're steeped in the history of bluegrass music and country music. But you've spoken and written about the influence that the Beatles had on you. Now, you don't regularly hear the Beatles and bluegrass music mentioned in the same sentence. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. Growing up with my with my older sister, when the Beatles came out in the you know in the '60s, early '60s, she was just all about them. You know, had it on radio and just loved to hear them. And and uh, what I heard in the Beatles is funny. Being you know seven or eight, nine years old, what I heard about the heard in their music, yes, they were playing electric. But it was a, it was a lot of acoustic. Early, their early stuff was was acoustic, acoustic guitars with electric bass. Paul was playing, but what I heard was the harmonies, and I thought, them boys, over there in England, they have heard somewhere in their life they've heard the Everly Brothers, and them Everly Brothers heard the Leuven brothers, and those Leuven brothers heard the Stanley brothers, and the Stanley brothers heard the Monroe brothers, you know. <laughs> so it all came back to the Opry, you know. It all came back to that early birthing of country music for me. Now, obviously, those guys heard other artists too, you know, Buddy Holly and, and people like that. So it's funny how, um, how those little things that we do musically, we never know. We never know how they're going to land. It's good seed on good soil. <laughs> Plant good seed all the time, and, and you'll have a good crop, you know. Well, what your music features is what's called Appalachian harmony. Mm -hmm. What is Appalachian harmony, and how does it differ from other harmonies? Well, I think Appalachia was a landing spot and the Blue Ridge, Smokies, all of that mountain, mountain stream, that mountain line that came down through the U.S. That was a kind of a, a drop-off place for Irish and Scottish immigrants, you know, late 1600s through early 1800s with the, you know, them coming over for a, a better life or a, a new life. Many of them got you know, a lot of the, the Scots got run out of the, the northern uh, part of, the, of their, their country, um, you know. Um, and so the, the, the Highland Clearances, you know, sent a lot of Scottish immigrants to, uh, to America. 
And uh, but thank God for it. I mean, they brought they brought their songs, they brought their fiddles, they brought the pipes, they brought their their love of the music. Now, musically, we owe you know Irish music a, a real debt of, of gratitude because that was the birthings of country. It was the birthings of what I would consider bluegrass. And I hear that harmony that we're talking about that high that high harmony, it's like someone singing here and then the tenor is up here. It's not exactly following the third, like, you know, like Ralph Stanley and Carter, when they sung, Ralph would come up and sing a fifth against Carter's lead, you know, mm -hmm. and it just created this, we call it old stanky mountain <laughs> stuff, you know, which, which sounds normal to me, you know, I love that, you know. And then, you know, that people started, you know, singing more trio kind of stuff, you know, and it was a little bit more organized, you know. But, uh, but my mom sang that away, you know, she sang hard, she sang loud and, you know, I tell people that when she started singing, her voice was so loud it could spay cats in four counties, you know. She just had one of those old, old Kentucky woman mountain voices, you know. And uh, God love her. She was amazing. Tough as a boot. These Highway 40 blues. I've walked holes above my shoes. Out of the days since I've been gone. And I'd love to see the lines of home. Where's the time and money too? Squandered youth in search of truth. My daughter, Robin, who's my eldest child, mm -hmm. said, if you talk to Ricky Skaggs and don't talk to him about Highway 40 Blues, I'm not going to speak to you for a week. So pull me out, if you will. What about Highway 40 Blues? Highway 40 Blues was written by one of my neighbors, uh, Larry Cordell, great songwriter, great singer. Uh, I hired him later on to come write for me down in Nashville. Um, he was, I think he was living actually in, in Florida when he wrote this song, Highway 40. But um, I equated it to Highway 40 Blues and, you know, me living in Nashville. And I think most people kind of equate it to that. But uh, it's just one of those songs that ev in every configuration of music, you know, if it's country, if we've got the steel guitar, or if we're doing it bluegrass, people love that song. I noticed you brought your mandolin along with you. Mind playing something for us? Sure. Yeah, I can do that. Well, what to. would you like to play? Well, Your choice. Oh, let's see. Well, I can do uh, do a song that uh, that I just uh, I just wrote here recently, but it sounds so old. <laughs> it sounds like. Uh, I call it the ancient tones because it does sound old. Well, you know. excuse me, because I do want you to play, but it yeah. strikes me that's one of the keys to your success. Yeah. That you sing new songs, but they sound old. Yeah. Well. That's a talent, man. Yeah, well, maybe it's part of my mama's Kentucky stanky voice, that old mountain sound, you know, that's still in my voice. And I, I know when, when Ralph would sing a song, Ralph Stanley, it sounded like it was 200 years old when he was singing it. It might be written, you know, recently, you know. So, uh, but that is something that I've I've always loved is the, the abilities to 
hear a hear an old song and bring bring a new face to it or a new just something new enough mm-hmm. and maybe it's only bringing it to a new audience right. that you know because they hadn't been wore out with it you know and so uh what's the name of this new song you have ancient tones ancient tones Thank you for doing that. You're welcome. Well, I'm asking a lot of you. One thing occurs to me that Garth Brooks announced that you were going to be yeah. inducted into the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Now, that must have meant something to you. Garth Brooks comes it, to tears yeah. announcing you're going to be in the Hall of Fame. Let's yeah. face it, you should have been in a long time ago. Well, should have, would have, could have. <laughs> we, can, we can talk about that for a long time. But Celebrate while we can. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm just thankful, so thankful to, to be going in. I don't think anyone ever comes to Nashville with that in their, in their focus. You know, oh, I'm going to be the Hall of Fame. No, no, we don't. And, uh, but I think about the ones that, that I've learned from, that I still listen to, that still inspires me, that's not in the Hall. And, you know, as much as I can you know, lament over why they're not there, I can say they are in there when I go in because they're going to be in my music. I can find them. Let me show you where they are. Right there's Mr. Monroe. Right there's George Jones. Now, George is already in there, but but like the Stanley Brothers, they're not in there, but I can find a lot of my music where they're, they're, they're right there. And harking back to something you said before, I think you can count on it. That at least metaphorically, part of your epitaph would be, he was original, not a copy. Ricky, thank you very much. Thank you, Dan. It was a real honor to be with you today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And that's it for this edition of The Big Interview. We're always eager to hear what you have to say, so please follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or send your comments to viewer at access.tv. And that concludes another great episode of The Big Interview with Dan Rather. We hope you've enjoyed this journey into the life and music of our special guest as much as we have. Now remember, if you love what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We'd also appreciate it if you would leave us a review and maybe even share the show with a fellow music lover. And to stay up to date with all things related to the show, you can follow us on social media, where we share behind-the-scenes tidbits, previews, and so much more. Until next time, keep the music playing.